0: Welcome to Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Today on the show, we have Jay Pages. Jay is a fourth-degree Cayo black belt. Jay owns the amazing Jay Pages Academy in Tempe, Arizona, with his black belt wife, Lisa Pages. Jay is also the primary host of the West Coast location of the BJJ Globetrotters' week-long camp, which typically occurs twice a year. Let me preface this by saying I like Jay. I like Jay a lot. The minute I walked into his academy, he was incredibly welcoming, and when I was having trouble with a simple concept in one of the many sessions, he was happy to assist me. I was a solo traveling stranger there, and he made this social introvert a lot less nervous about being there. In this episode, things get real. Jay shares, with great transparency, his insight into training methodologies, specific techniques, your game development, investing in yourself, and even some much appreciated personal stories. Just a reminder, please give us five-star review on iTunes and five-star on Spotify, or just share this podcast with a friend. It really helps us out. And leave us feedback, suggestions on how we can improve the show, and consider being a patron at anchor.fm forward slash Belt. Like our Facebook page at Forever White Belt, follow us on TikTok at Forever White Belt, and check out our Instagram at Forever White Belt Show. Go buy your favorite Forever White Belt swag at teespring.com forward slash forever dash white dash belt. And if you ever get to beautiful Northern California, please come roll with us at North Bay Jiu-Jitsu in the city of Novato. they are amazing instructors and everyone there are great people. Also make sure to mention the podcast to get two weeks free. And with that, I give you Jay Pages. Jay, man, it's great to have you on the show. I was so looking forward to this.
1: How's it going, bud? It's good to see you again.
0: Yeah, fantastic. So for those of you that don't know, Jay was the host of the Globe Trotters camp that I went to in Arizona. And thank you for that, Jay. Your facility is oh, fantastic, man.
1: Yeah, it was, no, it's good having you. You know, like we've been averaging two camps a year in Arizona, and I, I guess it was just that popular. Originally, it was just supposed to be, you know, just the East Coast camp in Maine, and then just the West Coast in Arizona. And I guess it just got it was so popular that Christian wanted to do two a year. So hopefully, we keep at it. We're doing two a year. We love seeing everyone and having everyone over. And I honestly, I look forward to it every year. You know, I get to see a lot of old faces and make new friends.
0: You are a Coyotera black belt. Yes. Congratulations on your recent promotion, right? To fourth degree. Hey, yep. You've been deep into martial arts, all kinds yeah. of different martial arts for quite yeah, some yeah. time. Well, also, can you let them yep. know where you're even located?
1: I'm in Tempe, Arizona. And if you guys don't know Tempe, we're the uh, right by Phoenix, Arizona. So it's one of the suburbs of uh, the greater Phoenix metropolitan area.
0: So let's talk about like the progression of how you ended up in in Tempe because you were
1: with Kyle where originally? So here's where I started. I actually started jujitsu, submission wrestling, grappling when I was 16 years old. And that was uh, 1994. And that was in Palm Springs, California. It was like shortly, not less than a year after the UFC came out, I found a group of guys that was teaching Jeet Kune Do, Muay Thai, and Shuto, or Shoot Wrestling. And that was the only thing, anything Jiu-Jitsu related that we had close to me. And when I was 15, I wanted to get into, UFC, I wanted to get into Jiu-Jitsu. And it was kind of far. I want to say it was like 30, some 40 minutes away from our I lived and my parents didn't want to take me so basically i was kind of left but you know once you get your license you go take yourself kind of thing so that's how that was like my introduction the guy that i trained with at, back then he went to the gracie academy in torrance you know once every other week or you know and that was our that was pretty much a lot of everyone's introduction to jujitsu back then because i mean we just barely saw hoist gracie You know, you wanted to do anything jujitsu, you had to do privates with the Gracies in California. And then over time, it's just like, you know, whatever anybody could get their hands on, whether they're VHS tapes, magazine articles, or even going over there. We just took what we can get. Then I had moved out here to Arizona for college to ASU. And I actually moved out here when I was 17 so I could get residency for ASU. And it was about that time when I started getting into jujitsu. Basically, my whole upbringing, I was kind of left at the mercy of uh, a blue belt because it's where my first introduction was. I was training with the blue belt because at the time, there was only one black belt, one brown belt, and like a small handful of blue belts in the whole state. I I to say this was back in about 96 97 and it was close to me you know the guy i trained with was a blue belt at the time he's under Pedro Sauer and I actually got my blue and I was training with him and I actually got my blue belt under Pedro Sauer. Then time goes on certain things happen and then I ended up under my one professor that I was with from blue belt to my first degree black belt it was Arthur Ruff. So I was under Carlson Gracie team from blue to first degree black. Had a bit of a falling out, and I've known Kyle for a long time. I actually met Kyle before he even opened up his academy. He came out to Arizona and did a super fight against JT Torres, and that's when I actually first met him. Again, I stayed in touch with him since, and then I saw that he started started an association. You know, it's kind of where I made my you know the business decision because I had my own academy. That this is the direction I need to go with Kyle. And I, honestly, I've been with Kyle ever since. But with Kyle, I um I had he gave me my second, third, and fourth degree black belts. When I came under Kyle, I would go out there for every year for about a week and a half for association camps. Mm. So we just basically just, we compete and train, you know, and just get to see all the other affiliates from around the world and whatnot. Yeah. And then he would come out here at least once a year to one of the affiliates. And But yeah, it's been a great relationship since, you know, ever since the beginning.
0: So in terms of your game, if you will, is it similar to Kyle's or is it uniquely yours? And I'm curious about just that question in general. Should a student have their instructor's game?
1: Honestly, I would say no. I love Kyle's game. I do pick up a lot from Kyle, especially from his half guard work. Half guard is probably one of my favorite guards to play Next to butterfly and the X guards and stuff. But that's about as similar as my game is with Kyos, is like the half guard game. Honestly, I've been like very heavily influenced by the Carlson Gracie style game, where everything everything's very top pressure, pressure passing, very aggressive. But I've also had my fit of fanboy. Of other like competitors coming up but i would say from like influences from instructors and stuff you know i definitely had a very strong carlson gracie influence the style of grappling and the, that type of game but i wanted i will say that i think the biggest influence i have on my game that's most closest to my game or my game is closest to is like marcelo garcia when i first saw him compete you know in adcc it's like I followed him ever since, and mm-hmm. I've always really kind of had this idea, even at you know at the lower ranks, that I don't want to try to emphasize a game that doesn't fit my body type. It doesn't make sense for me to try to do things as someone like that's 6'2", that's significantly taller and longer and heavier than me, because there's a lot of things that they're going to be able to do that I can't do physically influences that i've always tried to kind of like take was like people that were closer to my height my weight and i really tried to watch those guys because again coming up when i was younger i I, we didn't have the readily available information that we have like you know online like youtube and all the online training sites that are available today you know the educational process for us back then was going to as many competitions as possible and just staying there the whole day and watching people roll or getting tapes on tournaments, any footages, even like articles in grappling magazines and Black Belt magazine. That was our, the access to our development, and I took what I could, and but I had to be really picky and choosy with you know what I really tried to emphasize to like really build my game around. Because the way I looked at it back then, and even still to this day, that no two people are going to do the same thing the same way ever and physical attributes such as height, weight, flexibility, lack of flexibility or strength will all dictate how you play your jujitsu.
0: And certain styles gravitate mm-hmm. to certain people as well. But I think to your point, I think you're anatomically closer to Marcelo than even than Kayo or let's yep. say Bushesha or Braulio mm-hmm. or something yep. like that.
1: Yeah, it definitely. And that's why, like, I really, even till this day, it's like, it's, I would say, like, coming up, Marcel is probably one of, even though he wasn't directly, but he was like a very big main influence, a main teacher for me. Sure. You know, cause his, his instructionals were some of the first instructionals I ever picked up and bought. And my brother and I really watched them on a daily basis. And like a lot of our game, even though my brother's much taller than me, you know, a lot of our game is very similar. Because we watched it so much and really drilled it so much when we were younger, and, and like you said, like Marcel is probably one of the few guy big big competitors I could say that was most fit to my body type and style of jujitsu, and the way he looks at jujitsu too is kind of like really helped influence me too. Like having a very small gap between your no gi and your gi game. Now I love I love the gi.
0: No, this yeah. is one of the things I want to ask you exactly. And I'm glad you're touching on this because in a lot of the research that I've done and the searching in terms of on YouTube, for instance, yep. a lot of it was Gi. A lot of it, your, comp- your competition stuff, especially the early days, yeah. like between 2017, yeah. 2019, a lot of Gi. But as of late, I get the sense that you're really falling in love with nogi much more or have fallen yeah. in love with no gi much more. Uh, mm-hmm. So please elaborate on that.
1: A lot of my competitions were Gi in the earlier days because that's... The professor that I was under at the time—that was, you know, what he—he he was very into, and we did what he did. And, and Kyo, he did both. I mean, he—he's won more world championships in no gi than he did gi. And Marcelo, again, he was very into his gi and no gi. And then I want to say, like, my my the transition of passion towards no gi kind of just happened with age. Personally, I started doing better at no gi as I gotten older. That it's I like did the opposite
0: eat. of what I typically hear, <laughs> yeah. man.
1: Exactly. (laughs) It's, it's totally ass backwards. And (laughs) you think like being, you know, with a gi, I need more control of someone. It'll help me do that. And I'm older. I want to slow them down. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. But honestly, like I found it easier, like for me with no, to do that with no gi and I have, I have more fun rolling and doing no gi. And I think because of age, I think where, where I started falling more out of that passion for the gi it's just my grip, my hands. Honestly, mm-hmm. like the it's the mm-hmm. biggest issue I've had over the because I've done so much gi over the years. Like, so I first started out doing no gi stuff. I fought here in air. I did MMA here in Arizona. I fought in the very first mar- mixed martial arts event here. Then I got into just nothing but gi for for forever. And then over time, it just took its toll. Like the all that I've gotten is like the one just just one good hard day of training in the gi my hands and my wrists are wrecked for a good two, three days. And I can't, yeah, like gripping, holding, even teaching really hurt. And it kind of brought me back to that whole, you know, the way, you know, Marcelo's kind of always looked at it, you know, his jujitsu and having as little difference between his gi and no gi Mm games. But
0: you weren't like a big spider guy or anything like that but still you were just lapel <laughs> i did use
1: mind. a lapel yeah like i did use a lapel a lot i did play you know and honestly like with my wife too she she's loves spider guard and so it, i did a lot of spider guard and drilling work with her and having mm. to play with, you know so even though it wasn't my cup of tea i still put you know did and drilled it with her and there's no way i, could, I can't get away from you know me grabbing someone's sleeve and then ripping it out of my hand and yeah, yeah, whatnot so it sucks cuz i did i do love the gi and i do have a very special place in my heart but again more recently competition wise you know training wise nogi has taken over and become that my go to preference
0: you know it's interesting because you brought up slowing people down in nogi how are yeah. you slowing people down nogi
1: so with my, my hook, underhooks and overhooks, my clinch I have, I feel I have better clinching than I do just controlling the, someone with a gi. Honestly, this is something I actually like discuss with my students that I really try to tell them, I try to like not force it on them and impose it on them that don't be too overly confident with the gi. Just like your eyes would lie to you, the gi will lie to you. To me, the gi gets you too comfortable with space. I could hold someone at arm's length, right? I have a degree of control, but there's mm. a lot of space between myself and my opponent that could alter the position, you know, by what he does or by what I do. Mm. But if I'm clinched with him, if I have an underhook or over, an overhook or double underhooks or double overhooks, we have more surface areas of our body in contact. So it's much more difficult for my opponent to do what it is he needs to do to create the space.
0: For the people that are listening, Jay had his arms extended was the example of him holding a gi extended out. And then obviously with the clinch, you're you're connected effectively, right? Yes.
1: And so there are the ups and downs of it, but the examples I like to use is like if I grab your sleeve, your hand could still move within that sleeve because there's space between sure. the inside of your gi and your wrist. But if I grab your ri- hold your wrist itself. I have a lot more control. So basically, my whole idea and my whole goal is contact with my partner. If I'm too lazy with that space between myself and my opponent, even with the gi, I'm giving my opponent an opportunity to escape or manipulate their body or their limb to do whatever it is that they need to do, depending on the position. So for example, let's say I'm inside control right, on someone. My goal is to minimize the space, right? Their Mm -hmm. goal is to create space. Now, if I get too comfortable with giving up that space because I have all these different options with the gi, the competitor, or the athlete, or the student might be too inclined to just say, oh, okay, give it up. And, you know, they I have see. other options if that happens. Instead of doing their due diligence and fighting to keep that knee from coming back in to recover a car. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So that's why I feel like, and everyone's going to have a difference of opinion. I just feel like I have better control. Like, granted, we could wrestle, wrestle. You get slippery and whatnot. But I feel like I move less. I fight less in no-gi than I do with in a gi.
0: That's a unique perspective it- for sure. So when you play gi, are you playing yep. a no-gi game in the <clears throat> gi now? Are you playing yeah. clinch?
1: Yes. So like my whole no-gi game is, again, very little Universal? difference. Yes. Because I will use clinches more than I will use the gi. If the gi's there, I'll use it, but I'm not going to rely on it. My game doesn't rely on it. Where my game does rely, where I will use it more is if I'm having to deal with my opponent's grips. Okay? That's something I will emphasize in a gi game is grip breaking and having to take into consideration their grips versus having to rely on a gi for my guard pass or my sweep or my submission. If I'm going to do a triangle, there's very little difference in the way I approach my triangle in the give versus no give. You know, I'm not going to start in spider guard and go for a triangle. A lot of times I'm going to go from an overhook grip. And realistically, even the submissions that I go for, like I just threw the triangle out there. I never go for triangles. I physically don't have the stature to be able to do it on everyone. So when I direct my game and even the direct, the games of my students, when they ask for like those suggestions, when, what should I concentrate on? What should I be working on? Do something that's more fit to your body type, especially if someone's small. And the way I direct the instruction is if you can't do something on everyone, meaning all body types, you really shouldn't include it in your game. For example, if I'm like, like someone short and scrawny or short and thick, they're not going to be doing a triangle choke on a 250 pound meathead. Uh-huh. They physically don't have the space between their legs to be able to physically lock in a triangle on, on someone, which kind of goes back to basing things on physical attributes. I have short legs. I have arthritis in my hands. So realistically, spider guard, lassos, worm guards and stuff like that are kind of like out of the question because again, I can't use those in nogi. So I re- again, those are things I also stay away from. So at uh, two groups of submissions I do, I would, uh, you know, concentrate on because again, it's in my wheelhouse because I could physically do it on anyone, regardless of size are chokes and leg locks. The size of that person's leg or the size of their head or their neck doesn't dictate the success or failure of that submission. So whereas like if I'm doing a Kimura or an arm bar on someone, once they get to a certain size, there's a degree of counter or defense or use of strength to prevent that arm bar from happening. So following along with, you know, the whole physical attribute things, like I'll always stay, I really always stay away from those things that don't fit my body type and things I can't do in both gi and nogi. So like, I love clothes guard, but it's something I don't include in my game because I could put my clothes guard on kids to someone my size. Anyone bigger than that, I won't be able to play an effective clothes guard. And it really takes effects, the success and failure of that game if I can't lock up my clothes guard. However, I can lock my legs around Anyone's leg. You could be 300 pounds. I could koala your leg, so, which is why I gravitated always to half guard. Open guards like Butterfly, I don't need to close it around anything. And plus, it doesn't rely on a gi. Plus, it hides my feet. And then X guards and single leg X. I could play it regardless of height, or the individual's height. I could effectively play it. I would
0: think if you're with a <clears> tall guy, X guard may be a bit of a challenge.
1: I find it a lot easier to man- maneuver myself under someone the taller they are. And it was funny. It's like, I struggle with the single leg X on people that are taller.
0: Wow. You have a great yeah. video that Globetrotters recently released on um, some leg stuff that you do. And then yeah. also you have, you know, ironically enough, a uh, loop choke. Uh, yeah,
1: the baseball loop choke.
0: Speaking of bad hands, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> can you talk about those two videos a bit?
1: Yeah. So, the leg lock stuff, I've always been a fan of leg locks. That, that was like honestly in my introduction to grappling, what was a uh, shoot or shoot wrestling. And that was like a submission wrestling art from Japan that was heavily influenced by catch as catch can yeah. or catch wrestling. And they did a lot of foot locks in catch wrestling and they were huge in Japan. So, A lot of my introductions to grappling was through that. And ironically, at white belt and blue belt, most of my submission wins were by heel hook, Toe holes or knee bars, you know. Whoa. Back but yeah, back again, before that's... the <laughs> back before it was like it was outlawed, you know, before the IBJGF came around and said, No, you can't do that at white belt or blue belt or purple belt. You yeah. have to wait till you're brown. But yeah, that was my introduction. And then when I moved out of here, you know, kind of fell under the very straight traditional Brazilian jiu-jitsu route and I never touched, you know, never touched it again. Then, you know, when I opened up my own school. You know, it kind of felt, you know, reinvigorated that love for getting back into, you know, the leg locks and nogi and stuff like that. And then EBI just out of nowhere just starts to, you know, popularize it and whatnot. Like I was into leg locks before leg locks were even cool.
0: I would have thought that you just kind of rediscovered them or something later in yeah. your career.
1: Yeah, I loved it. Like, because back in the day, like coming up, UFC was not where it is today. There were other much bigger shows in Japan and even in in whole, like other shows in Hawaii that we had easier access to as far as film footage. You know, we had like uh, Shuto, Pancrase. there was um, Pride or Pride. Yeah, Pride, Pride too. Mm-hmm. but there was a promotion in Hawaii. Oh, I forgot the name of it off the top of my head, but they had a lot of Japanese fighters in there too. There was a lot of leg locks happening in those events too. It was very, it was more common back then in those competitions than anything. Mm-hmm. And we had, and the tournaments before IBJJF came around, the big ones actually were tournaments like Naga and grapplers quest. And today Naga is kind of a joke, but back then before the IBJJF, like if you won Naga back then, it, it was you're, a big you're deal big deal same thing with grapplers quest and yeah. then you had people from japan from ufc and like some of the biggest teams back that were fighting in these tournaments in these competitions and having super fights and and heel hooks everything was allowed it wasn't uncommon to you know see leg locks back then and then mm-hmm. Then there's this trend of, because IBJJF, you need to win a world championship to make your name. So that was like everyone's goal was to win those tournaments because they kind of like put themselves up on that pedestal to tell you, hey, we're the creme de la creme. You win one of our tournaments, you're legit. But for us back then when I was coming up, that was Grappler's Quest and Naga. But like you said, it did the whole crave, the submission only when... Even before the first EBI that, you know, the Metamoris, and that you had uh Hickson's Bushido challenge or tournament, mm-hmm. you know, those are the earlier submission only competitions. And then the first, my first introduction was watching, I think it was hit or Henner when he f- had this long, long match with Mark Lehman at a- one of the grapplers quests. It was a submission only, no time limit competition. And, you know, that was my first introduction. And, but Again, with these other shows, especially like EBI, I kind of reinvigorated that whole leg lock thing and mm-hmm. and it actually changed the, the the direction of my school and and what we we emphasized and concentrated on. For a long time, we were I was really pushing and heavily into point tournaments like the IBGGS style tournaments and really pushing those gi, you no know, even sometimes no gi tournaments. But ever since like the EBI came out, you know, it was like you could get on TV or whatever and UFC, if I pass, whatever. Mm-hmm. So we started getting into that sub only realm. And now it's kind of really redirected our emphasis competition wise. So we're more he- we're more heavily into submission only now these days.
0: So was that really stoked when you saw, you know, you mentioned EBI. When yeah. we started seeing effectively the DDS entering EBI and then Mm. you'd see Eddie Cummins and and just everyone, Gary Tonin and everyone. And did you think to yourself, this is a system versus what was Mm -hmm. happening early on in the leg game? What was going through your mind at that point?
1: What was going through my mind at that point was, yeah, there's something going on there because they were doing something different with Mm -hmm. the legs. You see that there was a system because there's a very specific process from A to B. There's step by step by step processes and rebuttals at each stage. If there was a response to the each phase of that transition from entering the leg the leg entanglement to the submission itself. You weren't seeing this prior. No. Okay. No. No. There was, there was no system back then, at least that I saw. Basically, what you know, people were just jumping at the submissions.
0: Because a heel hook's uh, a heel cut. hook. I mean yeah.
1: But how you get there, that's where the system lies. Not so much the finishing mechanic, but the mechanics used to get from A to B. Whereas, like, like I was thinking of um, a tournament in Japan, combat wrestling. You look at the way they jump, like they go for their heel hooks and jump at the leg locks. They see an opportunity and they're jumping for it, like someone jumps for a flying armbar or a flying triangle. They're just seeing a potential opportunity and jumping for it. And that's essentially what leg locks were like back then. There really wasn't a system. Some people could say there's a system, maybe for back then. But if you look at the, the, the leg lock game then and today, they're polar opposites. And the systems that have, have been developed by the Danaher Death Squad and even, even the 10th Planet guys, even before John Danaher was releasing his instructionals with the leg locks, hmm. the, the, to Eddie Bravo and his guys, I will give that to Eddie that you know he's very revolutionary. You, he could see a trend yeah. long before it's actually even a trend or a thing. It's and-
0: impressive too, is how he pivoted the entire organization mm-hmm. to attack the leg system as well. Yeah when did you identify this and when did you institute it and was it like mm-hmm. oh god i need to get this in my system immediately
1: yeah honestly it was after that first EBI, after that first EBI, and just seeing those the danaher guys before they were actually the danaher guys it's like there's something to it is it not a new concept a new idea that something that's old is now new there's a lot of things that are old you know that are new now but just better it's just more evolved there's old pictures of people playing judo players in Kosan Judo doing Delahiva, but the Delahiva, the way they use the delahiva or whatever they called it back then, is nowhere near as sophisticated as it is today. So basically that's pretty much what we've seen with the leglock game is that it's very general. You got a very bird's eye view, the tip of the iceberg back then, the Dan or her death squad and the 10th planet guys, they're kind of exposing the rest of that iceberg to the rest of the world through systems and flows. And I think what's made it really like, successful for the 10th planet guys is they actually have like systematic flows, especially with the leg lock game. So it's almost like they have their own katas for jujitsu you know, but that's with a, great, a partner. That's a great
0: analogy. Yeah, that's a great you know? analogy.
1: And it makes learning that, that whole system and, I get, and the whole leg lock game so much easier to understand than just listening to someone lecture for like an hour on why you sit in a honey hole and why your body's positioned this way. And I think, yeah, like I said, like right about that first introduction that uh, when the first EVI first came out, I think that's when I was like, you know, we need to start doing something with it. Mm. You know, we need to start bringing So I had to get one of my black belts or my brown boss at the time probably cover a couple of classes so i could just I'll cut a class in half and take some of my top competitors my more experienced competitors and start working on that leg lock game and so mm-hmm. that was where again i haven't touched leg locks in forever at that mm-hmm. point so i did you know a lot of heavy studying whether it was instructional videos, seminars. I tried to re-expose myself to as much of that leg lock game as I could You know, at that early stage. And I just bought everything up, took every seminar from every person that was doing it. That was good at leg locks because at that point, I looked at everyone was better than me at the leg lock in because I've been so far out of it. I didn't care if you're purple belt, brown belt. There's always going to be something to learn from someone. And I try to take it all. And I still honestly follow that to this day, you know, just try to follow, see where the trends are coming and forecast where the game is going. And then just try to start working on all that stuff earlier before people are too late to jump on that bandwagon. I want to be ahead of that curve. Do you see that happening a lot? different trends in Mm -hmm. Mm jiu-jitsu i don't know about the like tournament jiu-jitsu i haven't been paying as much attention to tournament jiu-jitsu but submission only yes adcc style competition yes and i saw this a long time ago you're starting to see more wrestling
0: yeah and
1: jiu-jitsu even before it was even a term you're hearing people oh you gotta wrestle up gotta wrestle I mean, wrestle up and you're just putting a term on something people like Marcelo Garcia has been doing since early 2000s, late 90s. It's nothing new, but now it's just something that's getting more popularized. And you're seeing more in submission only. And I think it was kind of like a a trend of strategic trend, a decision that people are making to help kind of fight the leg lock game. Because if you're constantly wrestling or instead of staying on your back and just trying to make a conscious effort to come up, you're not sitting on your back putting or trying to entangle your feet. With someone that's like maybe a potentially better leg lock, has a better leg lock game. So that's why you're starting to see more scrambles in submission only and more wrestling in submission only than you see a lot of leg entanglements. You're seeing very few, but even the reactions to a lot of leg entanglements, you're seeing a lot of like scrambles away. Like You'll see someone pulling their leg away like you would pull your leg away out of a single leg how you push on the head and you p- turn away and kick your leg sure. out. So like that, that's what you're seeing. You'll start to see a trend of more wrestling. And then mm-hmm. you'll even see like a trend of online instructional sites. I'm an avid collector. I collect instructional videos, DVDs, competition videos, like kids collect baseball cards back in the, back in I, I the day. I was going to
0: ask you, is, you seem like to be the type of guy that's just constantly investing.
1: Yes. In, in I, business. That and in my knowledge, Dude, like I have like a black belt level status with BJJ fanatics because I, I can buy so much stuff from them. You, know, <laughs> do you still have, I have a up,
0: stack of jujitsu magazines or something like that too. Somewhere? You know what's
1: funny? I did for <laughs> a long time. I did for a long time, but I got rid of them. But what I do have is a big stack of jujitsu books, wow. and some of them are actually worth quite a bit now because you know they're <laughs> out of print, like the Marcelo Garcia ones and whatnot. But back to what I was saying, yeah. So, like, if you could see a trend in all of the in like online instructional sites and even on like BJJ fanatics, for example, you're starting to see a lot more wrestling instructionals coming mm-hmm. up. Yeah, you're starting to see a lot of people showing more techniques on their instructionals where they're not really trying to sweep; they're just trying to come up for a single leg or a double yeah. leg. You know, I'm versus a uh, like body lock, body lock passing. I kind of also use that to help me forecast stuff. I'm like, what am I seeing? Everyone trying to work on or show or teach in their instructional videos. And it's kind of like what we had to do back in the day when our instructional our instructionals were tournaments. You know, we have to go to tournaments and watch every match and see like what some of the teams are doing, you know, like what's Carlson Gracie team doing? What's Gracie Baja doing? You, you mm-hmm. know, yeah. what's you know, Rasa or Alianz, what's Allianz doing? What are those guys doing? So like, then you start to see a trend and like, for example, like with the Barambolo. there weren't any instructionals of the Barambolo, but you started seeing more like over time, more that's and more true. people inverting. So that's why I use, I'll use like, competitions and instructions and stuff to help me forecast those trends. And then I really try to make a conscious effort to implement those early. Like I hired a wrestling coach to teach at my place once, twice a week. And now my guys, they could hold their own with like some college level wrestlers. You know, wow. their wrestling's good for jujitsu. You know, mm-hmm. can they go out and win a wrestling tournament? Some of them maybe for jujitsu. I mean, yeah, their, their wrestling is amazing. They've come a long way and they're, and I like to think that they're a lot further ahead of the game than a lot of other athletes in schools.
0: Since you're kind of forecasting, can you tell me how, how do you see the future of jujitsu going?
1: You know, honestly, I just see the, the submission only getting bigger, no gi getting bigger. The gi's not going anywhere. That's for sure. You're going to see a lot more events pop up. You're going to see a lot more money involved in the IBJJF is going to do more no-gi stuff. We're not almost there. We're not halfway there, but I think it's going in that direction. You know, And again, if you see all the instructionals that are out there, they're starting to be more no-gi instructionals. Even a lot of like traditional gi players are starting to put out more no-gi instructionals. Lucas Leitch. Right. Lucas yeah. Leach has recently put out a few no-gi instructionals. And then mm-hmm. I just, earlier today, I came across an Instagram post by Hodrigo Kavaka teaching something in, in, in no-gi. But you're still going to have the more traditional schools, for sure, uh, that are very gi-oriented. But then, you know, but then again, you're going to start seeing a lot of those, start to tip and lean to, in the other direction. You're already mm-hmm. seeing it in states like California and Texas, Florida let's see, back northeast. The northeast is getting heavily involved in no-gi. And Arizona, we're a very gi-oriented state. And most of the schools out here are very gi-oriented, but it's starting to tip and tilt the other way. More and more schools are, are introducing and doing more no-gi in their class, in their schools. But yeah, I mean that's where I, I see it going.
0: It does seem like a lot of the money and the big entertainment is going into a, like a yep. no-gi direction, whereas mm-hmm. like the general practitioner hobbyist is mainly yes. playing gi still. They're kind yes. of still the bread and butter of a, yep. a solo entrepreneur's academy or well, something like that.
1: A hundred percent, hundred percent. And that's why I still keep our gi program, you know, we haven't gone straight no-gi. But, and again, companies like Flow Grappling is definitely helping that out. With that, you know, as far as putting no-gi in the forefront and making it entertaining and the money that they're putting up like that, even like Seth Daniels for Fight to Win and Third Coast Grappling Evi, the money that they're putting out, they're making it more enticing for up and coming athletes to really get into and concentrate on the no-gi game. I'm at that age where now I could just, you know, I want to just sit back and see the next generations of jujitsu and see what they're doing, what they can do and what they come up with. And I love it. Like, it's the beauty of it. And kids like Cole Abate from AOJ. I mean, it's amazing to watch that kid roll. Like any of the kids from AOJ, it's it's beautiful to watch their jujitsu. Yeah.
0: The kids nowadays. Yes. The talent nowadays. Yeah. There seems to have just been a sudden hockey stick improvement. We're in this weird inflection point. I think that's totally mm-hmm. happening. Where we're seeing like someone like, as you mentioned, and I should get money because he's mentioned every damn episode, (laughs) Colabate, Uh, someone like that, you know, the Rotolos or whatever. Yeah, the Rotolo, yes. And and probably in your academy, you're seeing these kids, you know, starting so young Mm -hmm. and with such a dearth of information. What does it look Mm -hmm. like to you?
1: Yeah. No, absolutely. And like, I've even mentioned this, like, you know, I've commentated on uh, numerous occasions for fight to win and mm-hmm. third coast grappling and just seeing these kids and the level of their jujitsu. I couldn't say it enough that these kids scare the hell out of me. I'm like, Holy crap. Once this kid gets some weight onto him, he's going to F me up. You know, yeah, you know uh, yeah. it's a scary thought, you know, <laughs> he's younger, he's going to be bigger and stronger. Like, I don't know what they're putting in food today, but kids are, they're getting bigger. It's either that, or I'm just getting shorter in my old age, (laughs) but, um, but yeah, it's, it's amazing to see the level of the competition. And it's at no surprise because kids are starting young. And by the time they get to like, even like the early teens and not even juvenile, they would have had more time under their belt than most purple and brown belts. But like by the time they get to that level, if they start, let's say, when they're five, and they become, you know, the juvenile division at sixteen, that's already eleven years of jujitsu under their belt, and that's a lot of skill acquisition. Even though the skill acquisition is very low and minimal at that you know, earlier stages, but man, these kids are like sponges. You know, once they get it, they'll stick to it and go with it, and they'll listen and do whatever it is. Like you can mold them into whatever you want. You know, and you can see that in a lot of competitive kids these days. And by the time they get to that juvenile division, they've, again, more time on the mats, more skill acquisition, more ring experience than a lot of black belt adults and you're seeing it like in like results like with colabate winning you know the adcc as a blue belt you're seeing you know lower belts like jacob couch Pedigo. you know he was like what purple belt and he was whooping up on a lot of high level grapplers and some Mm -hmm. black belts and their jiu-jitsu is amazing as well you even saw it in like you know at the lower level ranks of you know Mm -hmm. Lloyd Irvin's guys back in the day you could see that that level difference and and like uh jamil jamil taylor that's who I, I, Jamal, Jamal Jamal Jamil Hill Taylor. He's one of Lloyd Urban's top competitive black belts. Started him as a kid, he was an amazing competitor as a kid and as an adult, 100 times better. Yeah, you know, he because he had all that ring experience, he just came out right when he got his black belt he was out the gate running just whooping up on everyone because he had all that ring experience and, mm. and same thing in like my academy like i have a girl Everest who's been with me since she you know her parents got her into jiu jitsu with me since she was 5 and now she's mm. 14 her dad was a competitive wrestler her, she comes from a family of wrestlers you know they all Jeez. her, her <laughs> grandfather's her dad wrestled at it. It was a competitive wrestling. He wrestled for ASU. She wow. wrestled. She's been wrestling since she was little. She wrestled for Sunkiss and her, her the mix of her jujitsu and wrestling makes her like an amazing and a scary competitor. And because of her, you know, her age, you know, she and coming up in the time that she came up, she doesn't have a lot of girls to, you know, go against yeah. in jiu-jitsu or even wrestling. Mm. So coming up, she had to compete against a lot of boys and mm you know and then we started getting her into submission only competitions as well and and it, it's scary you know you she wrecks a lot of her like adults that are her size sure. you know but yeah that level is amazing the, the level of jiu like you would you never see this back in the day like when i was coming up you know and i think it's because at that time when i came up we just didn't have enough time that passed to pass by most of the people that got into jujitsu when i got into jujitsu were all adults already you know And then kids' classes were few and far between, if even existed. Now, it wasn't until like er, like earlier 2000s that you're starting to see more kids' classes. And now you're getting these kids when they're five. Now we have time to go by and get these kids groomed to start competing and whatnot and see the growth of their jiu-jitsu. So back then, blue belts beat white belts. Purple belts beat everyone below. brown belts always beat everyone below. Black belts beat everyone.
0: So then what are your thoughts on the belt system? Because it seems to just completely like upend the whole concept. Like people have these, as you mentioned there, that firm old belief, I call it old belief. Yeah. Uh, As you said, the blue belt beats the white belt, you know, the purple belt beats the blue belt and so on and so on. Whereas now you're seeing, as you mentioned, kids. Kids (laughs) or a blue belt, like, oh, destroying black belts or something like that. And then Mm -hmm. it makes you wonder, what does the belt system even mean
1: anymore? And that's, you know, honestly, that's a good question. And again, it's going to be based, it's all going to depend on who you're asking now.
0: How do you feel about
1: it? I honestly feel there should be two different types of ranking, honestly. Mm -hmm. One ranking for active competitors and then a different ranking system for the hobbyist. Because the active competitor, they're going to have a significantly higher skill level than others at their level that don't compete at all. Because there's a lot of things that are gained through competition that bring experience in that level, that skill level versus just coming in and having a friendly role with somebody. So I personally feel that, you know, competitors, they shouldn't have to adhere to like an IBGGF standard that they have set forth. Like, it, you know, you have to be at, a, at this belt for an X amount of time. If they have the skill, and it, again, it's all to the instructor's discretion. If they feel that that student has the skill to be at blue, purple, brown, or black belt, and they're in, they're, and they're beating, demonstrating it. They're yeah. demonstrating out on that regular basis against and beating black belts. Who's to say that he doesn't deserve it? Mm-hmm. A timeline set forth by. A third party mm-hmm. that's never met that kid or trained with that kid. However, like, again, the hobbyist, that's a different story. Again, the skill acquisition for that per for, for the hobbyist is going to be a lot lower or slower than the person competitively training for a competition and competing. Like, I would say, like, st- have someone stick to that same quote unquote timeline as you know a minimum, but on leave leave it to the instructor to base you know that that competitor that, that athletes rank on you know their successes that they're having you know yeah I mean the belt
0: does serve a really good purpose in terms of just yeah. incentive for people and yeah. recognition especially incentive yeah and you do have kids belts right yes yep but to fracture it even more I would almost want to add a senior belt Type yeah. of system, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <yep, laughs> Selfishly, yep. right? Yeah. 100%. Because if I'm a 50 year old black belt and I'm going against a 20 something brown belt, even yeah, mm-hmm. or purple belt, even uh,
1: 100. You know, percent. Yeah, like I mean, there's it gets you know, messy you, though. It can get messy then, it does. though, right? It does. It does. And I guess this is like their the IVGGS way of you know, generally keeping it general for everyone. But then again, like I said, keeping like the the belt ranking for athletes and, and keeping them from being able to compete because they got promoted too early, I think is ridiculous. And that actually happened with Paulo and João Miao. When they first got their black belts, they couldn't compete for that whole first year as, as black belts because they weren't registered with the IBJJF as, as brown belts for at least a year, a year, a year and a half. So, because they, they, it wasn't even a thing back then. And so now it's a thing when they got their black belt, now they can't compete for a whole year. It, it was stupid and it's ridiculous mm-hmm. to, you know, keep someone that's wanting to compete that obviously has the skill and the history to back it up yeah. and keep them from competing. You know, yeah. I, th- I thought it was ridiculous.
0: I know Deagle ran into something similar recently too. Or yeah, He had to wait a year to compete too. in the, <clears throat> Yeah, I think in the gear.
1: because he never he didn't compete. He didn't. He wasn't registered as a brown belt with the IBJJF. That's right. Why. Then he got his black Baddest. belt, and then he had. And that's why I think there should be a separate ranking parameters for competitive athletes that do compete on a regular basis. At least for the IBJJF, if they're gonna adhere time and stuff like that, and skill, stick with the belt system because of skill levels and stuff like that. They they should have something like that for athletes and especially now, like, you know, we were talking about earlier that, you know, the skill level of kids coming up is so high that like Colabante has got more knowledge than a lot of brown and black belts. I have no purple belts, but adults that have more knowledge than a lot of brown and black belts. So it's hard to say, honestly, I think if there was something done and you could only have it one way, I would honestly kind of like, I would still stick with what the IBGGF does just because they do a pretty good job at regulating You know who's legit and who's not. And so does like Belt Checker does that, you know, regulates, you know, it's like a peer-to-peer source, peer-to-peer resource of like, who's legit and who's not.
0: I love your idea as a quick something remedy or something.
1: Yeah. So they shouldn't, they shouldn't like keep someone like that from competing. Like I know Cole, although he has a skill level of a black belt, he can't get to it because of age restrictions. He has to wait. He can't get it until he's 18 or 19 years old. Jay, in terms of your Jiu
0: Jitsu, as of late, what's interesting you?
1: You know, lately, coaching, coaching jujitsu, learning jujitsu, you know, and taking the the coach the coaching standpoint lately. For a long time, I really loved competing. And, you know, I loved working on specific aspects of my game. Like, I would honestly, I would stick with, like, if I wanted to get my baseball choke better, when I roll, every time I roll this, that's all I'm going to do. But now, I've done a 360, and now it's like, instead of trying to get me better at something, I my goal is to try to get somebody else better at something.
0: That's interesting. I was Competing is a very selfish type of act, and I don't mean that yeah. in a negative way. It just you no, no the best you need to be, mm-hmm. whereas Coaching is the complete opposite. It's kind of a selfless exactly. fact. Yes.
1: And it is, it is, you know, and it's, it is, and what's it, funny is the minute I did that 360 is where I started to see the development of my guys go up. Mm. Because one thing I've been told when I first opened up my academy was, you got to pick and choose. And I'm like, pick and choose what? Are you going to be a competitor or athlete, or are you going to be a coach or a business owner? Because you say you can't, you can't do both. Very, very few are able to have a very successful business. And to have a very successful competitive career. And people that have done it typically have a crap ton of help and a crap ton of someone with money, you know, to keep that that boat afloat. At the time, I still love competing. There's one year I competed on average like 13 times a year. Like I said, you know, when I started, they did that 360. Instead of me worrying about becoming a world champion, I mean, honestly, I feel like that kind of like the ship has sailed. My goal is now to make somebody else the world champion, Mm -hmm. and I find it more enjoyable because now it's like a lot of my time is spent studying. A lot of my time spent, like again, forecasting trends, dissecting, and I'm turning my my guys and like into my lab rats. My competitors are all like my lab rats, and like I'm trying to experiment with different ideas and different things and see if this is going to work you know with their game or not we're going to work through the game is it, are they using this successfully in competition or not and i find more enjoyment in that these days than actually competing so i do miss competing I do plan to compete again, you know, soon, hopefully. But again, my joy has been just really building and coaching, you know, my team and coming up with better ways to coach, researching different ways to coach, become a better coach, a better way to convey information and a better way to just be a better teacher, I guess, in a way, right? I'm always constantly trying to play with our, you know, our lesson plans and the structure of our classes and what we're teaching. Oh, After and, all these years, you're you're still iterating yeah. these these things, huh? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Yeah, I have to. I have to. And plus, it's also kind of like an OCD thing. If I don't, mm-hmm. if I don't, I'm gonna be. I'm gonna go. I'll go nuts and crazy if I don't do that yeah. stuff. I feel lazy if I don't do that stuff for my guys. Do you have
0: a preference of like, what do you prefer doing privates versus group classing? Honestly,
1: I like group classes better. Even if it's a small group, I don't mind doing privates, but if I do privates, I try to push for small group privates or I'll just have somebody kind of help. I'll grab one of my students and be my ookie for say, you know, for that person. But I prefer the group classes better. Mm. Although, you know, the, the private sessions do help with progressing my students and athletes a lot quicker for sure. There's no arguing that when I coach, I don't spoon feed people. I've seen over the years, the way some people teach someone's having an issue, they'll physically grab your hand or an arm or a leg and place it in a certain spot for you. Or mm-hmm. they'll push your body or twist your body this way or that way to have you put in the right position. But the way I've always looked at that is like, I think that does the student a disservice because to me, you're you're doing the work for them. Do you see a pitching coach coming up to a pitcher, putting the ball in his hand and throwing the ball with him? <laughs> Not really. You know, he'd give him tips, slight adjustments and stuff like that on the sideline. Maybe when they're a kid that might've worked, but like over time it's like, no, put your right leg there. No, your right leg. No, you are the right leg. No, no, yes, 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 there. Because again, it's making them, it's forcing that person to have to think for themselves and the information tends to stick better when they figure it out for themselves. And that's why I referred to like, I don't spoon feed people. They're forced to have to feel what I'm asking them to do. And it takes it, it keeps it from becoming a monkey see monkey do kind of situation. Instead of just repeating and going through the motions, They're physically having to understand the movement and feel the weight and whatnot. At the beginning, newer people tend to have a little trouble with that. And from time to time, I will like help them move their leg, but that's about it. Just try to give them direction because like I said, you know, everyone's got a different body type. Everyone's going to approach something just slightly differently than another. Someone might have to stand up a little taller. Someone might have to sit out a little bit more or crunch a little bit less uh, but it's stuff like that it's, I find enjoyable, you know? And I even thought about testing out that reverse classroom methodology. It seems like it's such a great idea and everyone I've talked to loves it, but it just, and at the same time, it just seems like it's a lot of work and it just seems like there's a lot that can go wrong in a like a jujitsu setting than can go right. And I try to apply something similar uh, just for warmups where I just kind of let, you know, the topic of the class or the lesson plan, you know, this week is going to be passing a half guard with some uh, with a with knee shield. Mm-hmm. So instead of like having them blindlessly just could do a bunch of solo drills, jumping jacks, and- Running around the mat, I make them all warm up with the technique themselves. So I tell them, "Hey, your warm up. Go back and forth with your partner two or three times each. You know, we'll do whatever half guard passing comes to mind. Review what we went over earlier in the week. Or if you only know one thing, I don't care. Just do that one pass over and over again. But use this, use the movement of these techniques to warm your body up for it. And it's kind of like taking a page out of weightlifting. You know, like I was heavily into weightlifting, powerlifting, CrossFit for a a very long time. I still I was like, gonna add, I
0: just, you still do that. Right. I mean, that's yeah. uh, just yeah. <laughs> <a> terrifying <laughs> squat or deadlift or something. Yeah, and like, yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm still very into it, but like one of my old coaches was like very adamant about this. And he's like, are you going to go jump in a pool and swim to warm up for your run? Are you going to run to warm up to swim? Are you going to do jumping jacks or bench press or curls to warm up for a squat? No. You warm up with the, the movement itself because those are the muscles that are going to be engaged when you actually start lifting that heavy weight. Mm-hmm. So I kind of took a page out of that. Instead of just warming up with unrelated movements and postures, mm-hmm. let's just go in and start getting into the technique. And it's like a lab for yeah. them too. Tenth Planet themself. had
0: a lot of those warm ups too.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah the, those Tenth Planet warm ups are like they're like katas yeah. for the Tenth Planet guys. You I mean, they use those katas as a warm up. It's kind of like also like we I got the idea. Just let them use those movements for the warm up. It's not as strict as the Tenth Planet curriculum.
0: The academy. I'm super interested yeah. in the academy itself. Sure. It's, a, it's a beautiful facility. Oh, appreciate you, it. Thank you. How did you even approach like brainstorming? What do we need? What is it going to look like? Mm-hmm. The design elements, mm-hmm. uh, how, even executing all these things, because just yeah. from like a. a Customer experience too, just walking mm-hmm. in the door and everything—it's just perfectly done. It's, it's oh, just, I one of, probably it. one of the best executions of an academy I've seen.
1: Oh, I appreciate that. It means a lot. <laughs> you, you know, it's funny—all by accident. <laughs> 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 I would not have it's expected hell. that, man. but um, no. But see, honestly, <laughs> just like what we've done in our previous locations, we take what's given to us and make do with what we have. Kind of like with jujitsu and are your opponents always going to give you what you want? So whatever building, if you're patient enough, what you want will eventually come out. We've gone through several iterations, you know, and honestly, like the lobby area, mm-hmm. that's all my wife.
0: I should mention yeah. her, Lisa Pages. She's fantastic, <laughs> by the way. And oh, appreciate it. You guys it, should appreciate. check out her YouTube uh, video that was recently released by Globetrotters on the spider. It's been immensely helpful for me. So please tell Lisa I said thank you for that. Oh,
1: advance. definitely. But, oh, but well, Jay, well. I mean,
0: I'm talking about like your, your mats are beautiful. The, yes. the wood design underneath. I mean, the dressing room. Yeah curtain idea that you have there's fantastic the signage even like little things like like a little wi-fi sign that people don't even guess wi-fi you know things that people forget to do and then you got your merch area on the right just Mm -hmm. the way you guys sort of laid out everything and planned everything Mm -hmm. you say it's by accident Mm -hmm. but i find that that really hard to believe because it's done so well
1: yeah so yeah i guess there's some kind of a plan i guess like but like i said it was all lisa and a a lot of it took my wife telling me no so
0: location too is it's 5,000 square feet
1: no it's uh 8,500 holy cow yeah so um the mat area is a little over 5,000 like the total amount of mat space that we have is a little over 5,000 so jay your advice on black belts
0: wanting to get into uh, to open their own academy would you recommend also that they go into business with a friend
1: no, absolutely not. Honestly, like- And everyone thinks they doing that. And you know what? And I, I, I warn people about this. They ruin friendships. I won't get into business with friends or, and I definitely won't get into business with family. The way I look at it, money ruins everything, always. Pride, ego gets in the way, regardless from where it's coming from or who it's coming from. It's always going to be an issue. Like I even had like a couple of my black belts go into business, you know, together and opened up a gym. And we have a new affiliate, and they were not without their issues. And I'm like, kind of told you so, but they work it out. But they've been friends long enough to where they could have their issues and they'll always work it out. Mm. But in my experience and experiences that I've seen in other cases, it's never worked out. It's always ruined friendships and relationships. And I would always advise from doing it with anybody else. If you have the capacity and the means to open up your own place by yourself, by all means, do it. Borrow the money if you have to. And don't try or think you have to go so big right off the bat and keep from borrowing money. Do your best to not borrow the money, save your money for it. And if you borrow money, don't borrow money from a friend or relative or anything. Because again, that's just as bad as going into business with somebody else. Because again, money is involved. Anytime money is involved or transition of money between two friends, like hand to hand is involved, it puts a little bit of tension, no matter how slight, there's always something lingering there, regardless if someone wants to recognize it or not. But I would definitely always advise against opening up with a friend.
0: Jay, can you tell us a time yep. that you wanted to quit? And if so, why?
1: Oh, <laughs> yeah, now it was maybe this is like, a, gosh... About 2014, I wanted to quit. Well, at least it crossed my mind. You know, I have, you know, I deal with other personally, you know, issues. You know, I have, you know, I deal with a bit of anxiety and something no one really knows. I deal with a bit of depression, depression bouts here and there and probably some attachment issues or detachment issues. You know, but I hide it because again, I don't, I don't want to bring any of that stuff to the gym, to my friends, or put it on anyone else.
0: You know, I find it strange, and I I don't mean to dismiss it. This seems to be pervasive in jujitsu, or I don't know if it's just a reflection of society.
1: You know, honestly, it, who knows what it is? We see it more often in jujitsu, just because that's the world that we're we live in, and a lot of people get into jujitsu to help with that stuff. And for whatever reason, or however jujitsu helps, it just does for a lot of people. And basically, because I've you know I've had those issues to one degree or another, I feel like I handle it better than most. But at the same time, not without having the, these bouts. But what happened back then? You I was getting burnt out and it took something I loved so much. It's my living. You know, this is like the thing that I used to put food on the table, the clothes on my daughter's back and put my daughter through college and I wanted to quit it. I got so burnt out because it, it was just my every waking moment and it took something that I loved so much and turned it into something I was starting to dread or starting to, I almost borderline started to re- regret or hate because it was my hobby. It was a, it was a passion. And because it was my every waking moment and I was eight, maybe seven, eight years into owning my own business and I just got burnt out and like, I can't, like, I don't know, can I do this anymore? Because my weekends were completely filled with tournaments and whatnot and Mm. having to open the gym and, you know, my daughter was still young, somewhat young and I just like, I I got burnt out. And what helped me break that wand or desire to quit was partially part of it was just my students. I can't leave them. There are my friends, my family, my kids, and I couldn't leave them because I, I love them that much that, you know, I would go through hell for them all. So it feels like and, an obligation. Yeah. A loving obligation, but an obligation. Yes, exactly. And the other thing that helped me was I got into CrossFit. Hmm. You know, I picked up a different hobby, but hmm. it was a different hobby that wasn't too far from what I was doing in the sense that it helped my jujitsu in a way. Basically, it was just something that broke up the monotony for me. Like at that time, it could have been mountain biking. It could have been joining, like getting into triathlons or something. It could have been any of those things. But it's something, it's a second activity with a completely different group of people that I was involved in that I didn't have to work in. I just
0: spoke with uh, Lindsay McCaffrey, who's a black belt on mm-hmm. uh, yep. 10th Planet. And she was yeah. saying something similar that she needed something else besides the identity of jujitsu, you know, that mm-hmm. this all encompassing world and, and it was it's her business yeah. as well and everything that mm-hmm. she started falling in love with all things uh, dragon boat racing.
1: Right? really interesting yeah.
0: Yeah, and yeah that's like became her passion yeah. and she loves it and yeah, yeah. and she gets she lights up about it in a different way and, and i can yeah. see this
1: yeah and yeah, yeah. and
0: so it's amazing when you talk about crossfit yeah. and then it creates that
1: spark yeah and it's, and again it's like a different group of people you know like a different group of uh, an outlook on life and and everyone that's in jiu-jitsu is like everything is jiu-jitsu basically crossfit and the people in crossfit they're just like the jiu-jitsu there's a lot of cultural similarities between mm-hmm. the two sports, you know, and I guess that's why I got so involved in that, but I didn't have to do anything. It wasn't my job. You know, I went there for fun. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, ever since like that, you know, I still do have fun with Jiu-Jitsu. I still love jujitsu, And I think what also has helped me was getting more involved with the Globetrotters and teaching <laughs> with the camps and meeting more new people all the time. I think that helped reinvigorate something. Yeah, in me it seems well. like it
0: gave you another kind of spark or something like that. Because I, yeah. I saw it with you and Luki, Lisa, that there's this yeah. this feeling of excitement and fun. And it, yeah. it, I mean, there are literal parties at times too. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, I yeah, mean, it's, it's it definitely seems to break up, as you mentioned, the, yeah. or the staticness or the yeah. monotony, if you will, of yeah, yeah. The day-to-day schedules.
1: Yep, yep. Our daughter's older now, so now that she's older and moved out, we get to do like we we had our daughter when she was young, really young, and so we were young parents, and so we didn't get to do a lot of the traveling and things that a lot of younger kids did when we were that age, like going to Europe or going to Mexico or doing this or doing that and partying and stuff. But now we're doing we're making up for that, and you know, and the gym and the and jujitsu has given us the means to do all that and the means to travel, meet new people and everything. And and I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for, you know, what you just has given to me. And I'm glad I back in that 2015 year when I just felt like quitting, I'm glad I didn't. Because again, I wouldn't have met the, the amazing people that I met, made the good friends that I made. Like, you know, like I'd never in a million years would I ever have thought I'd be very good friends with the Gracie. Like such good friends, you know, I, consi- I consider him my brother. I would give him the shirt off my back there you know there isn't a thing i wouldn't do for this guy and that was all through jujitsu. i've seen some amazing places too and again all because of jujitsu.
0: how did you get involved with the uh, globetrotters
1: so it's funny now i used to follow christian so christian Groger the he owns the globetrotters i followed him on his website that he used to have with shogun shogunhq.com you know, and it was kind of it was a blog of his that he used to plan and also use as his journal as he traveled around the world and just training. So after he was done with all that, all the training and traveling all over the world and stuff, he has a video where he goes into like pretty good detail as to you know how he started the Globe Charters. But when he did, kind of wasn't an affiliation, wasn't a team, but what it was, and basically I was one of the first schools and first black belts to join their BJJ Globetrotters globetrotters follow those same values that i actually i even apply on a day-to-day basis in our academy and i like and i like to think and attribute the success of my academy and the growth of the academy to those same values that i hold dear that are the bjj globetrotters i've made so many friends because like you know one of the things is like always be welcoming and accept and invite visitors and i took it a step further you know they said let them you know globe travelers and you know, let them train there for a week for free you know and like if I have someone there for a month, I'll yeah, just get your visitor. You're not living here. Just, you know, don't worry about it. I've never charged anyone a mat fee for, you know, as far as visitors are concerned. And everyone's always surprised. Like, can I buy a shirt? i like, mean, no, you don't, don't feel obligated to, you know, just, just say something nice. Write me a review or something. Give me a hug or a handshake or whatever. That's all I need. One of my things I always tell my guys and tell the visitors is like that mat fee that people make, whether it's 20, 60, 80 bucks, you know, that money will come and go. But that potential friendship that I can make was worth a lot more than that money. I'm not going to go to my grave with that money. I'm going to go to my grave with that friendship. And I'd rather have that friendship than any dollar amount.
0: I hate to belittle it, but I actually think it's a smart business decision too.
1: Yeah. And what that's done in turn, you know, they just gotten the name of my name out. Yeah they gotten the name of my school out, you know, mm-hmm. people post about it, share it. And, and we get, and they, now we get some of the biggest names that come to our academy, whether it's for a seminar just to train. Gosh, over the holidays, we had uh, Cody Steele at our place for open mat, you know? wow, That's the kind of thing we want to attract is just want people to have fun when they're there. And that's why I think we have probably have the best open mat in the state of Arizona on sa- Sundays, at least.
0: I'd be remiss if I didn't mention when I was doing yep. searches of you in YouTube, the highest yeah. number search that I would see is this, this video, and I was crying like a baby watching it. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah, no yeah. one no one makes me cry yeah. my own tears. So you owe me for that.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's
0: this video of I believe it's your daughter. Yes.
1: Yeah. Can can you explain, can
0: you explain that situation? That scenario?
1: Yeah. So like I said, we, I had, we had her like my wife, we had her when she was young. I was, I think she was one. So I was like her, her father figure from almost day one she had like when she was younger she would periodically see her biological father but then just out of nowhere just kind of fell off the face of the earth so i raised her from one year old and she was been with me at every waking moment like i took her everywhere it went as far as like it was probably like i was a horrible parent for doing this but my brother and i really wanted to watch the world cup finals italy versus france and there was an english pub that was showing it and I was like, oh, yay. So we went to the store. I got a couple of coloring books, a box of crayons, yeah. sat my daughter at the bar with her <laughs> We've crayons done the and same coloring thing. books, got her. Yeah. Dude, a root beer and chicken strips. She was great for the whole match. Yeah. <laughs> You know, years went by, you know, like I've always wanted, I wanted to fully adopt her to get her, have her take my name and, but it was so expensive. The process, the legal process is ridiculous, just as ridiculously expensive. And we, I just didn't have the money for it. You know, my wife and I were still young. Then 18 comes around. Like when she turned 18, I was happy. She's an adult, but it was the most, my heart was just breaking inside. Like, you know, she'll never have my name now. Her next name is going to be her future husband's. That's going to be a next name change. And then on, I forgot which birthday it was. It was my birthday and... She gave me the paper, the adopt because she was old enough now, because she's an adult. We didn't have to go through those other legal processes, just a, a matter of filing some paperwork and then wow. going before court. But yeah, that was it.
0: It was like a surprise, right?
1: It, yeah. It was, it was like in I, an envelope was, or something wanted, like
0: that, and Jay opens it yeah, up, and, yep. and then the waterworks as a, as begin. The
1: <laughs> <laughs> i wanted it so bad i was the one thing i wanted so bad to have that name change you know i wanted her to carry i wanted her to be a pages and, it was a beautiful moment you it know really that was, way now amazing and now she recently just changed her name too again she just got married oh awesome uh, congratulations really, that's wonderful. really good yeah thank you thank you but yeah yeah that thing went viral holy crap Please
0: <laughs> did it ever My god <laughs> That's Jay's most popular video on the internet, far and away. Right. Jay, can you, can you talk to us to take a hard pivot? Yeah. Let's talk about BJJ Fanatics and yep. Enter the Sandman. What is it? Yes. Why is it called Enter the Sandman? There is so much content on there. It's crazy. Yeah.
1: So like I mentioned earlier, the, like, I love the two different groups of submissions I love are leg locks and chokes. And the first one is a gi instructional because there's obviously more options and more choking options when you introduce the gi. And I love chokes in general, and especially with the gi, there's so much you can do with the lapel and whatnot. And when I taught that baseball loop choke, yeah you know at say. that first at that at the globe trotter camp in maine it was like you know i got a lot of messages and it was very popular and requests and questions about it and then you know every seminar i taught you know everyone wanted to learn that so i was like all right so I, that's kind of what spearheaded it i need to put that on a, on a dvd or instructional before someone else saw it and actually put it on an instructional but yeah honestly i've been wanting to te- do an instructional for bjj fanatics for a long time mm. yeah but and of the Sandman, you know. It's like you know the Sandman has to do with sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> and I couldn't, I couldn't tell you. I lost count, like how many people I've put to sleep just teaching, just demonstrating. Wow. I Note feel self, horrible. Don't be Jay Z gay. But and also the Sandman, like, I love the Metallica growing up. And I love yeah. that song, and it, I love Enter Sandman that song, and you know, so it's was like, perfect name for the instructional.
0: I've never seen um, so many baseball choke examples, my God.
1: Yeah. yeah I know I love it you know and then I'm actually planning on uh, doing another enter the sandman but a no-gi version I, I love teaching again love coaching you know more than I compete these days and mm-hmm. teaching seminars teaching at camps I teach for the globetrotters and I also teach for another group pilgrim jiu-jitsu we I've taught in Ireland a few times for them I've taught in Costa Rica for, all, for them and I'm actually going to be going to Iceland to teach for them as well and I have a 25 Twenty-eight affiliates around the world. Most of them here in the states. I have two in Mexico and five in the Philippines.
0: Your well, latest one on glove sure. charters is fantastic. The details on yeah. the on the heel hook that you got the control is so amazing.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: can you talk about that a little bit? Because I noticed that you're cradling the hook and, yeah. and you're mm-hmm. not allowing the spin, which I see all the time. And I'm like, mm-hmm. Jesus Christ! Look what Jay's doing here. This yes, fantastic.
1: And honestly, it's just an approach to the heel hook. Like I don't want to be so narcissistic to think that I came up with a grip, sure. but to, to be honest, I haven't seen anybody else show that grip yeah. or do use that grip in competition. So basically all we're doing is let's say I have the toes under my right armpit. I'm just grabbing the heel with my left hand to add a little more meat to the heel. So it sticks better. So I have, you know, I have my left hand and my right wrist to Me lift that heel up. It's a better lock and a better hold of that heel so that heel will never slip. Mm -hmm. And the other again, I'm you know, I'm gonna give credit where credit is due. Taking away that spin is something that I picked up from Lachlan Giles. I had him here for a seminar a while back. If there's one thing that really stuck out was the way he did his heel hooks, he doesn't twist and spin or pull or turn because you pull and twist like that on the foot, that's what ends up eliciting the spin. So by a combination of holding the heel so you never lose it and just kind of rocking the heel up towards our face and then hipping into the side of the knee basically helps us, in a manner of speaking, burn the candle at both ends. So I'm putting pressure on the knee with my hips and I'm also putting pressure on the ankle with my grip and I'm using my hip and my arms to twist the whole leg at the knee. You're bringing the toes back
0: too, correct?
1: Yep. I fold the toes into my, my ribs. And then I I pinch the toes under my armpit. I pinch my elbow into my ribs and then I get the grip of the heel.
0: Your grip is almost like an upside down kind of Kimura grip.
1: I look at like almost like a butterfly grip where you put your wrists together and you just fold them over your forearms. It's kind of like a similar grip to that. The only difference is I'm turning one of my hands around. So basically all I'm doing is I'm taking I'm, my right palm is facing me. And then I take my left palm, okay, is facing away from me. And I just put the inside of my wrists together. And so my butterfly grip, I just wrap all five fingers around the forearms. And then from there, my left hand just turns around and I catch the heel with that. That's essentially my butterfly grip to control that
0: heel. We're going to add the video to uh, yeah, yeah, the show notes as well. And then what if someone does awesome. the ballerina toes on you or tries to ballerina foot it out?
1: So, and again, that's the beauty of holding that heel. The ballerina toe is not an end all be all answer to that escape. What it is, is an answer to escape the escape for a heel hook where someone uses their forearm or their wrist to get the heel hook. Mm-hmm. So if I'm gable gripping and I use my forearm as the controlling mechanism of the heel mm-hmm. to pull that heel up towards me in that case, that's when the ballerina toe will be effective and essentially have that heel slip off the form. But because I'm hugging, I'm cupping the heel, you know, your heel doesn't become completely flat by doing the ballerina toes. You still have a bit of your heel there. So again, because my hand is cupping the heel, it doesn't matter if you ballerina toe it or not, I'm still going to be able to finish and place the torque on that knee with that butterfly grip.
0: Where can we get more information about you, Jay?
1: So the best place is going to be Instagram, J-A-Y-P-A-G-E-S-J-J-C-T-A underscore A-Z. You know, I have a link tree with all my other links on there.
0: Well, I, I could talk to you all day. I love uh, extracting all this information from you.
1: No, it's a great talk, man. Good. Lo- I'd love to you know, chat with you again, whether Please. it's at another camp or back on the podcast. It'd be great. Yeah, that'd be awesome.
0: All right, Jay. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks everyone for
1: listening out there and we will see you guys next time. Thank you, Jay. Awesome. Thanks for having me, bud.